Terrorism, North Korea, Iran, illegal immigrants, these are all things we hear about a lot that we're supposed to be frightened of. We're told over and over that these are the biggest threats to America. But what if that isn't true? What if these threats are overblown? Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Joining me today are Michael A. Cohen, columnist for the Boston Globe, and Micah Zenko, columnist with Foreign Policy. Together, they've written Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better, and Why That Matters to Americans. Michael, Micah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. How dangerous is the world right now to America and to the average American? Um, Not at all, really. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'd say, well, let's put it this way. There's no significant uh, military threat to the United States. Um, There's certainly no... um, sort of rival peer country that has the ability to attack the United States militarily. Uh, our neighbors to the north and to the south are, we're very friendly with, um, for the most part. Um, there's no sort of, you know, uh, sort of strategic military tension with them. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of, I guess, the, the sort of black swan possibility of, of, of a nuclear exchange of some sort with, with, with Russia, but that, again, is highly unlikely. And the things that we do talk about, like North Korea and Iran, really don't represent threats, direct threats to the United States. Now, it, uh, threats to U.S. interests, to some extent, yes, that's certainly the case. But when it comes to the U.S. directly or the American people, hardly at all. And, and finally, when you come to terrorism, you know, it's kind of hard to really come up with any evidence that that the terrorism is a significant threat or certainly a, a, a greater threat than the things all around us, which harm Americans in much more significant and much uh, more, more profound ways. Yeah. And so the question is, a lot of these threats are coming in to us through politicians. Why do politicians do this? Why do they want to use fear to motivate? Politicians, bureaucrats in national security agencies, generals in uniform, uh, media members, military contractors, pundits, think tankers, um, they have great interest of securing both their own material well-being um, progressing along their professional career trajectories and largely fitting in with the conventional wisdom and accepted norms of their field. And within foreign policymaking, the accepted wisdom is that the United States is at an ever-increasing degree of threat and risk to its people. These threats and risks um, emanate from abroad, and they only get worse and worse and more threatening over time. Um, If these threats are characterized as diminished, then the justification for the resources, for the power, for the authority that these individuals uh, garner by inflating the existence of foreign threats will go away. Uh, So they have every reason to continue to, I would say, mischaracterize the world as being uh, ever and increasingly threatening to Americans. And is there not some sort of political capital to be gained by maybe taking credit for America actually being safer than before? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly, a, you know, for an incumbent president, incumbent party, there's certainly some some uh, benefits talking about, you know, peace and prosperity, but you're always, you know, you have to deal with sort of the rival 
party trying to argue otherwise. Um, and, you know, and look, it doesn't always happen that, that the threat monitoring works. I mean, I go back to like 2012 election, you know, Mitt Romney tried to use uh, um, sort of a fear-based uh, a message against uh, against Barack Obama, it didn't really succeed. Um, I think it's more an issue that, you know, these kinds of things are very easy for people to, uh, for politicians to, uh, to utilize and to utilize in a way that activates uh, um, their sort of political supporters. And it's interesting, we, you know, think about 2016, we really weren't facing any serious foreign threats in, in any way, shape or form. I mean, it was the same, in many ways, the same situation we're in now, but you had these isolated incidents. So you had, for example, the, the a mass shooting in San Bernardino by two uh, individuals who had sworn loyalty to, to uh, ISIS. And, you know, this led to calls from Republican politicians to ban Muslims entering the country and, of course, led to, to Donald Trump calling for a Muslim ban. Um, you know, you had Trump using a, a threat that didn't exist of undocumented immigrants, you know, and using that supposed threat to to uh, to motivate Republican voters. Um, and so those are both successful you know, fear-mongering strategies that really had, that really bore no relation to, to reality. So I think that this kind of thing is, and, and interesting thing on immigration, that issue's been out there for a long time. I, I think one of the things that Trump figured out how to do was how to sort of weaponize it politically. Um, and, you know, I think it certainly was, was beneficial to him among Republican voters in 2016. So I, it's not, I don't, I, I, would, I would sort of make a caveat that not all voters are going to fall for this argument. And there's a really fascinating political divide between Republicans and Democrats and how they view the world. Republicans are much more much more fearful of the world and much more likely to be uh, to, to, to see threats around the world than Democrats. But, you know, in the case of Trump, it was a very effective tool for building Republican support in the, in, in, in the Republican primary. And why is national security um, for some voters such a uh, such a driver when it comes to voting over some of the some of the more domestic policies that get talked about that's a good question I mean, to me national security is given a certain degree of um exalted um respect we see people in uniform wearing suits who have access to classified information that we don't have um they purportedly use this to basically shape and describe the world uh, for voters, and in doing so, they create a picture that is gloomy and dark and generally quite dismal, a picture that misrepresents the tremendous gains in human progress on many different metrics uh, over the past 25 and 30 years. Um, and I think when properly uh, feared, um, you know, f- because of behavioral and cognitive biases we experience, um, fear-based messaging is more remembered. It imprints deeper upon our minds, and it makes us more willing to support otherwise, I would say, foolish uh, policies and programs and generally uh, misplaced and misprioritized spending. So uh, why it works is because we are conditioned to recognize fear uh, and to remember it more deeply. But as Michael said, it doesn't work all the time. And, but there are people who, we, in the book we call the threat industrial conflicts, who are essentially idea entrepreneurs who make it their life's mission to characterize the world in a way that we contend in the book is uh, um, dishonest. And let, let me add one more point to this. Uh, you know, I, it's not just the benefits of this are not just electoral. In fact, I actually argue that's probably low down the list of, of where it's beneficial. Um, it's actually in some ways more beneficial in sort of bureau- in the bureaucratic world or in Congress 
in, in um, decisions about how we spend money and how, how we allocate resources. So, you know, every year in, in, in February, the, um, the director of national intelligence goes to, to Congress and tells the, uh, uh, the senators and the representatives that we are facing a catalog of complex and, uh, you know, evolving threats from around the world. And, and as a result, you know, we need to be prepared for this. So we need more money for the intelligence community. And then you have folks who come from the Pentagon wearing uniforms and medals and, and so forth, telling the, uh, the assembled members of Congress that we face significant military threats. So we need more money for ships and for planes and for tanks and for all kinds of different things. So where, where a lot of this has an impact is in stuff that doesn't get a lot of attention in, in the, 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 the allocation of our military budget. And, you know, Micah does this more than I do, but both of us can sort of point to these examples of, of members of the military going on Capitol Hill and making the most outlandish, extraordinary statements about threats facing America. Our favorite, favorite one, it's in the book, is, is um, the former head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Dempsey, going to the, the Congress and saying that I believe the date was February 16, 2012. I may have the exact date wrong, but saying that date was the most dangerous moment in history, in human history. <laughs> and that kind of rhetoric is, is is utilized, and it doesn't even people don't pay attention to it. It's just sort of said. And I think for a lot of members of Congress, they hear this and they think, well, I I better give the military what they want as far as their military budget. And there isn't a questioning of allocating this much money for things that may not be a significant threat to the American people. So I think that's where a lot of this rhetoric has has its most sort of uh, malevolent impact, if you will. So is the is the threat mongering sort of just being filtered through politicians? It sounds like it might be coming from, you know, maybe other sources and and the politicians are sort of just filtering it through them after hearing this rhetoric all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's definitely the case here. And I think that, you know, I could talk about this, talk a little more about this, but the threat industrial complex, you have people look, look at whenever there's a terrorist attack, even even around the world, we immediately think about this in the U.S. as far as uh, this is something that's a threat to Americans. This is something we, just, we need to be concerned about here. There is this uh, you know, as he pointed out earlier, there is this kind of, you know, complex of folks who, who benefit professionally um, and materially from sort of making people think that we have more to worry about, what about what's happening around the world. And do do the, the military leaders or the people who are going to Congress to get this funding or, or the people who are making their living off of this, do they believe the threats or do they just use them to manipulate? Well, I would be careful to mind read anybody, but it is inevitable that ask yourself why you never hear a military official saying the world's getting better. Ask yourself why you've never heard a defense contractor describe the uh, open seas as being more safe or space becoming a more uh, uh, open place and transparent place, why cyber threats never diminish. the reason for that is because if somebody um, um, gave that opinion, they would no longer hold their jobs, right? So they, they do it, and they only describe things getting worse and worse, and they completely ignore all of the metrics of human progress that we document with data in our book uh, because those metrics and positive news stories are irrelevant. They're, they're largely not news to them. Um, so a couple of the things we talk about in the book is we overfocus on one area of the world, which is Middle East and North Africa. The Middle East and North Africa combined make up less than 5% of the global population. If you read foreign policy coverage in the news or foreign policy coverage, even on Capitol Hill or within administration officials, it is overwhelmingly about the Middle East and North Africa. 
And again, if that's the lens you choose to see, through, see, uh, see the world, then you see a, a, a region that is unusually conflict-prone and violent, um, but that doesn't represent most of the world's current experience. I mean, look, I, I just say one thing. It's possible that all of you we're talking about simply have a very pessimistic view <laughs> of nature, mm-hmm. and they are just glass half-empty kinds of folks, <laughs> or you know, they have a vested interest. It may, be, it may not even be a conscious notion that they're doing this, but, you know, but an interest nonetheless in, um, in talking about the world in a certain way that benefits them materially and professionally. I mean, it could be a coincidence, like I said, but I tend to doubt it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely, there's some, there must be some amount of job security there. <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so what role then does, say, social media or the, the news media, 24-hour news, um, cable news, play in all of this? One of the ways we set up the depiction of the world in our book is a series of surveys that have been given to U.S. citizens to ask them about global progress. And almost nobody knows that life expectancy since 1970 has increased by seven years. Under five, child mortality has been halved. AIDS deaths have declined for 15 straight years in a row. Um, There's been 53 million tuberculosis deaths uh, averted since 1990. Extreme poverty has been almost uh, decimated from half of the developing world to just one in 10 of the developing world. And they never know that. And the reason is, in the media, good news is not newsworthy. And positive trends that require context and history are literally never, ever reported. Um, And ask yourself, you know, when you hear positive news stories, it's about one discrete individual who does something out of character and positive, and it's often captured on video. Um, But the fact that um, almost the entire Western Hemisphere is now uh, democracies or uh, not at war, uh, for the first time ever, all of the Western Hemisphere are not experiencing any wars between the states. Like, that's not a story you will hear reported or, or, um, or featured by anybody because, again, good news is not news. So it, it reminds me of this old joke about, you know, that when there's an, air, an airplane crash, you know, folks who work at airlines or airline officials or, you know, FDA or FAA saying, well, what about 20,000 planes that didn't crash today? <laughs> right. Right? So, I, I mean, I think that there, I, I get that, look, a plane crashing is a big story. I get why people reported it. It's important and you don't want to have plane crashes. And, and, you know, if a war breaks out of a terrorist attack, that's news and you need to report it. I think the difference here is that there is this story to tell that is one of the most, I don't say what, it is the most extraordinary story in foreign policy, national relations of the past 25 years. It, it is an extraordinary, unimaginable story of human progress, of people living longer lives, living uh, healthier lives, uh, being, not being mired in poverty of going to school, of being literate, of having job opportunities they didn't have before. I mean, Mike has cited a few numbers earlier, but the, the advances in human development and the, and the human experience over the past you know, two to three decades is simply extraordinary. And there's never been anything like it in the history of, of the species, practically. I mean, it's incredible. And that is a story that can be told. You know, I mean, you can tell the story about how, how Guinea worm, which was a disease that used to kill uh, tens of thousands of people every single year has basically been wiped out, or or uh, the or the global HIV issue, which has as, as Michael said, it's gone down for I think it's 14 years in a row. And that is a, an amazing story that I, I I do think enterprising journalists can report on. It just as he said, and I think he's right. You know, there is this kind of this old you know there's the old line about if it bleeds it leads, and that's true in local news, but I think it also unfortunately it's true in foreign policy news too. That this sort of good news stories do not get reported the way that they should. 
And I think that if they did, uh, people's views of the world would be very, very different. And does that start with the with the the news media itself, or does that start with the audience? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I, and I think it's also basically because it's also politicians too. I mean, I think people take cues from what they hear from politicians, uh, from what they hear from media figures, and you know, there isn't a lot of uh, um, that kind of you know viewpoint being heard in in in, in media, and 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 I think people. You can only blame people so much. I mean, I think if they heard this stuff, they might be they might be more inclined to believe it. But they hear they hear a drumbeat of negativity and, and negative stories. It's kind of hard to to be, we we tell the stuff we, we talk about this on Twitter or social media. People people never believe us. <laughs> I mean, it's like there's this weird like this can't be true. Or what's happening here? What's happening there? The, the amount of skepticism that I get when I talk about how great things are happening things are happening around the world is 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 incredibly telling it's it's ironic too because people are very quick to believe the the negative stuff that they already sort of believe but when you come along with a positive story no one wants to believe it yeah it's true i just add one thing to that um is that it's not just that people um receive bad news as as we document from a series there's been a lot of surveys um since 2001 that have shown this in experiments that if you prime people with threatening information, especially threatening information presented by um, uh, allegedly credible news sources or military officials, they become far more supportive of higher military spending, of torture, of all sorts of military interventions, uh, of basically abrogating civil liberties and rights uh, within the United States. So it doesn't just um, misrepresent the world, but it has a strategic purpose which is to um, implement essentially greater government control of their lives and greater government acquisition of resources in order to support the reduction of those alleged threats. So it primes people to not just think about the world in a certain way, but it primes them to think about the correct policy responses. So obviously there's a long list of maybe things we can sort of ignore or at least not let ourselves be hyped up about as far as threats go. But are there legitimate threats, whether external or maybe just internal threats, that people should be paying more attention to um, instead of some of these other things? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think that there's two, two ways to answer that question. When it comes to sort of international issues, um, you know, just for the, to be clear, we're not suggesting we shouldn't be concerned about, for example, you know, Iran, if they want to build a nuclear weapon, North Korea want to build a nuclear weapon. I think our point would be more that we shouldn't exaggerate the threat to us. And there are ways to deal with this that that are, you know, don't necessitate the use of military force, which is often sort of the, the knee-jerk response kind of stuff. But things like climate change uh, certainly is an issue that is an international issue that has a could have a, a catastrophic effect um, in the United States and around the world. On domestic issues, there are, you look at uh, the opiate epidemic, you look at gun violence, you look at, um, you know, fatalities and car accidents. There are a whole host of um, issues on that, that or, or challenges that we face in the, at home that, that harm Americans in a much more significant and dramatic way than anything happening in the international environment that don't get nearly the attention and resources. I don't think we're saying anything new or different by saying that we should pay more attention to gun violence than to terrorism. But it should be said over and over again because 40,000 Americans die every year from gun violence and less than 100 die from, from terrorism. I mean, it's actually a lot less than 100. So, you know, it, it, it is important to sort of be clear that we spent we spent $3.8 trillion after the 9-11 attacks uh, because 3,000 Americans were tragically killed. I mean, 
3,000 people are killed by gun violence, you know, in a, in a typical month in America. And that should be as much a, a national priority, national emergency as, as, as terrorism. And I'll just add to Michael's uh, point, this was really best summarized just four months ago. The CDC announced that life expectancy in the United States had fallen for the third straight year in a row. The last time this happened was at the peak of the Spanish flu and World War I just over a century ago. Um, this is reflected in the doubling of drug deaths in less than a decade to 74,000 last year. Um, the, the U.S. suicide rate has increased 22% since 2000, um, at basically at the same time that the global suicide rate has come down almost 20%. Uh, and then there's, the, there's been an uptick in gun homicides, road deaths, which had decreased year after year after year, have finally stagnated. And what's fascinating is as uh, the world has gotten better, America is increasingly becoming a wealthy country with developing world challenges. And our political leadership, both sides of the aisle, White House and Congress, are largely indifferent to the uh, sort of, as we call it, slow motion Harry carry that America is committing. And this is, if you're interested in foreign policy and you're interested in national security, you have to take care of Americans first. And one of the core themes of our book is we need to reorient national security around the threats, risks, and harms that Americans experience at a far more um, consequential and numerical uh, level than anything that comes from migrant caravans or North Korea or China or North Korea or Pick, pick whatever scary group is out there. Okay, I, I want to add one thing to that. You know, when we did, we, so we this book began as a article in Foreign Affairs um, about seven years ago, and in the book we first of all we, we don't even mention the drug the, uh, the dr issue of uh, drug overdose, overdoses. It wasn't a, a major issue in, in 2012, and of course now it kills as many people almost as guns and cars combined. Um, but one of the, the stats we had in the, in the in the article that I remember at the time being shocking to me was that about 32% of Americans are um, considered obese, uh, which was the highest number in the, in the developed world among OECD countries. Was, it was by far the highest number. And that, that number had increased pretty dramatically since the 1980s. Well, when we went to work on the book, uh, we had to change those numbers because now the obesity rate in America is around 40%, 25% increase since 2012. And, you know, that... that and the thing with an issue like that is obviously there's a health issue involved. People who are, are obese, um, they have more health problems, they, they live shorter lives, uh, but there's also a larger economic issue. I mean, the healthcare costs associated with obesity run in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, the, the loss of economic productivity from having a workforce uh, that, is, that is overweight is again in the billions and billions of dollars. So one of the things about this I think that's really important to understand is that we're not just talking about people's quality of life and people's life expectancy, which, which, by the way, we could talk just about that because it's pretty important. I mean, I don't want to minimize it. That's a pretty huge deal. But also, we're talking about sort of the larger economic uh, uh, foundations of American power. I mean, I don't, America cannot be and continue to be this great, powerful country around the world if we have a, um, a, a, a base of, of, of workers and of, of, of citizens who are have lives marked by poor health, by greater levels of anxiety and depression, by low productivity, it's just, this just doesn't, not conducive to being a great power. So I think that, that it's important to understand that these issues are not just about our quality of life, but also about our, our, you know, 
our national security and our ability to be a, a powerful and influential country. So we can probably assume that as long as as long as this works, as long as the people who are using uh, the threat mongering get the result they want from it, whether it's the the military or the politicians who need voters or or whoever it might be, the media who needs ratings. Um, how do we, as as the people who are who, who are feeling the effects of this? How can we change the way we react to this threat mongering or or make it less of a of a viable um, platform? Well, we sort of have a series of rules and uh, prescriptions for how to do that. I mean, everything from, you know, for example, the U.S. intelligence community every March does what's called this annual threat briefing. And in every annual threat briefing, every director of national intelligence describes the world is getting worse and more dangerous and the threat's growing. And we sort of ask us, why isn't there an uh, annual opportunity briefing? Why doesn't the intelligence community um, sort of look for opportunities to advance human development and global progress? Um, Why doesn't Congress, instead of thinking about threats, think about how to make the world better and essentially in turn a world that is safer and greater uh, aligned with American interests? Um, We also say things like, for all of the cable TV pundits who you hear uh, on various shows, you don't know the material interest that they have on the issues that they're speaking about. Um, interestingly enough, in the business press, if I hold um, uh, any equity or any stock on a company I talk about, that's usually disclosed um, either on the on a Chiron on the show or at the end of a newsletter you write. Um, we have to be more transparent about the sources of funding for think tanks, um, um, for the people who support this stuff. But one of the other pleas we sort of make is for American citizens to do their own investigations, uh, do their own research, and we have our list of sort of top 10 favorite websites uh, to get large, to get completely bipartisan, neutral data about the world. Because if you use the media, and especially social media, as your filters, for how you perceive the world, it will, con- it will sort of constantly be structured in a way that appears both gloomy and dismal and threatening. And worst of all, it appears that a world that, you ha- that we have no agency um, to do anything to improve things, and there's no urgency to do it because we just feel crushed and defeated. Um, so ultimately, it's upon us um, because politicians and people in power uh, won't do it on their own. All right. Well, the book is Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better and Why That Matters to Americans. Michael, Micah, thank you for coming on. Uh, Our pleasure. Thank you so much. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.